Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanides. And alongside me is nobody this week. It is just me. Unfortunately, Josh's schedule uh, did not allow him to be available for this. So no big deal. We'll, I mean, I don't want to say no big deal. Like I don't like, like I'm, I don't miss having him on. It's, it's a lot easier and more fun for me to be talking uh, with somebody else. But like I said, it's just the way that it goes. Sometimes we're both uh, married with kids. And so sometimes scheduling just does not work out, but I do want to welcome you, the listener to the show inside the hexagon is about walking through the major events, fighters and milestones of strike force which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. We are getting towards the end of Strike Force. We still have a full year worth of episodes in terms of 2012, a full year that is not a full year of us doing this show. Uh, we actually only have a few months left uh, before we are, are we are done with our run here. But on today's episode, we will be discussing Strike Force Melendez versus Masvidal, which took place on December 17, 2011, at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. In the main event, El Nino Gilbert Melendez would put the Strike Force lightweight belt on the line against rising challenger Game Brett Jorge Masvidal. In the co-main event, Chris Cyborg would return to the Strike Force cage after an extended layoff to defend her Strike Force women's featherweight title against Japanese challenger Hiroko Yamanaka. Also in the card, Gegard Musasi would battle Ovin St. Prue, and KJ Nunes would tangle with Billy Evangelista. I do want to mention that Inside the Hexcon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com. All right, as we like to do, we want to talk about fallout from the previous Strike Force event, which was Strike Force Barnett versus Haritanov. This, this was a very momentous event for Strike Force as we saw a new Strike Force middleweight champion crowned with Luke Rockhold winning a hotly contested unanimous decision over Jacare Souza to capture the belt. We also saw the finals of the heavyweight Grand Prix set with Daniel Cormier and Josh Barnett both winning their fights to advance to what looked like a very intriguing finals matchup. There would be some news by the way, regarding the Strike Force Heavyweight Division announced shortly. So let's get to that actually uh, in just a second. But uh, I, in terms of this card that we're talking about, there was a lot of news around Strike Force in the lead up to this event. And I want to touch on a bunch of stuff here. But Ken Hirschman, it's a name that not many in MMA may remember today, but he was a Showtime executive who really championed MMA while he was their head of sports division. Uh, he helped bring both Elite XC and then Strike Force on board during his stint with, stint with the pre cable channel and when Hirschman left in October of 2011 Strike Force's deal with Showtime was just about up many wondered if this might be it for the promotion uh, because without a TV deal how viable was Strike Force and especially at a time when the promotion was str- struggling to find its footing both with ratings and in terms of, of attendance at arenas so this was a big question mark uh, however it turned out to be much ado about nothing a Strike Force and Showtime would agree to a new deal keeping the promotion on the channel there was not there were no no terms announced with the deal, uh, but we would see, you know, obviously we know looking back 10 years later now, Strikeforce would continue with Showtime through the end of its run uh, with the last card taking place in January of 2013. So we saw over a year, just over a year um, from the, the signing of the deal uh, to when it would, you know, basically conclude when Strikeforce got folded. But uh, it was interesting as part of the Showtime announcement, there were other uh, very intriguing tidbits of information that were revealed. And so I'm going to run down through these UFC president, Dana White, who had appeared to distance himself from Strikeforce when Zufa bought 
Uh, Strike Force Dana had said that it would be Scott's show to run. Scott and Showtime could do what they wanted to do. But now it had been decided that he was going to become way more involved with the promotion, despite having a very strained relationship with Showtime. Uh, and both he and Scott Coker seemed to be speaking for the promotion, which was to say the least, very interesting, Strikeforce would be cutting back on the number of its events as part of this deal. Uh, This was a promotion that never had a massive roster. A lot of the fighters that competed on the the undercard, the prelims, were not regularly contracted, you know, with multi-fight contracts, that sort of thing. We know that the heavyweight division for a long time was really barren, not a lot of challengers there. Uh, We also, while the lightweight and welterweight and middleweight divisions were, you know, there was a lot there. There wasn't always a lot of depth to the light heavyweight division uh the the women's bantamweight division had been growing but the featherweight division was not it was pretty much as dana put it really all about cyborg that was really all there was there uh not a lot of great uh, or at least i say great challengers but not a lot of really intriguing challengers there so I guess you could make a case for cutting back, but um, yeah, they were going to be going back to to producing only six to eight events per year. So no longer were they going to be doing monthly events. Also the challengers events, which had kind of filled the gap in between these main tent pole events that was going away. We were, we we're going to cover the final two challengers events uh, during this episode, but this would be it. So, you know, it became a question of, are they going to have enough fighters? What, what's going to happen? And Dana said, well, we'd actually be seeing more fighters being signed by strike force which was rather interesting so yeah so and then in a, in in addition once the heavyweight grand prix was completed once we saw a winner uh, of that which would be determined again between josh barnett and daniel cormier the heavyweight division would be eliminated which would leave strike force with their women's bantamweight and featherweight divisions as well as the men's lightweight welterweight middleweight and light heavyweight divisions we were also promised we'd get new champions crowned in the welterweight and light heavyweight divisions as you might remember the 170 pound title had been vacated when nick diaz headed over to the ufc while the light heavies needed a new champion after dan henderson had also headed back to compete inside the octagon and then finally, one of the strike force divisions that did not need a champion crown was the lightweight division as Gilbert Melendez, who Dayton White had recently announced would be heading over to the UFC, had actually re-signed with strike force and he would be defending his title on the card, obviously, that we're covering on this show. So a lot going on. It really gave some clarification to the the direction of the promotion. Again, there was whispers and worries that it might shut down at this point if they couldn't strike a deal with Showtime and instead they'd be moving forward. And this was all supposed to be seen as positive for Strike Force in retrospect. Uh, not so much when you're cutting back on the number of events when you're losing, you know, a, a division that you have, while it's traditionally not been one of your strongest divisions, but you have invested over a year in the, you know, the heavyweight Grand Prix and, and you're going to say, OK, well, that's it. Now we're done. Um, it could have been something that I remember Scott Coker saying at that time that you, he would put up his heavyweight division against any other heavyweight division for any other promotion. And he could definitely make a case for that. And Josh and I have talked about that on previous episodes. Uh, we do feel like the UFC overall had a better heavyweight division, but it definitely was close. And we saw a bunch of strike force heavyweights head over to the UFC, but yeah, in retrospect, I mean, uh, you know, we had seen the death knell for the promotion when they got bought by the UFC. They were on their way out from the beginning of that. Um, but, you know, this 
at the time was spun as something positive, but I, I think in, in retrospect, I just, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but it just couldn't have been negative. You're cutting back on divisions. You're cutting back on events. I, yeah. I mean, come on. So, uh, but with Gilbert Melendez slated to defend his title, all we needed was a challenger and it would end up being the surging Jorge Masvidal and other bouts on the card that we're talking about today. KJ Nunes would battle Billy Evangelista, former light heavyweight champ, Gegard Musassi would take on Ovent St. Pru and in the co the championship co-main event, Chris Cyborg would return from a lengthy layoff to defend her title against Japanese star Hiroko Yamanaka. All right, I mentioned the Challengers events being closed out. There were two that took place between Barnett versus Heritanov and Melendez versus Masvidal. Strikeforce Challengers Larkin versus Rossborough took place on September 23rd, 2011 at the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas. There were a few notable competitors on the card, including current UFC fighter Bobby Green, who submitted Sharon Spain, Ryan Couture, who took a, a majority, I'm sorry, majority decision over Maka Watson, and then Lorenz Larkin. He took a unanimous decision victory over Nick Rossborough in the main event. And then on the next and final challengers card, Britt versus Sayers, it took place on November 18, 2011 at the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas. Uh, there would also be several recon recognizable fighters on this one. Bobby Green was back, got another submission victory. Derek Brunson, current UFC fighter, took home a decision victory. Fellow current UFC fighter Anthony Smith got knocked out by Adlin Agamov. And then in her second strike force fight, Ronda Rousey submitted Julia Budd with an arm bar 39 seconds into their bout. And then in the main event and uh, the very last strike force challengers fight, we saw Lumumba Sayers knock out Antoine Britt in just 28 seconds. So that's a piece of strike force history. All gone. No more challengers cards. All right, but this brings us to the event that we are talking about today. Strikeforce Melendez versus Masvidal again took place on December 17, 2011 at the Valley View Casino Center in San Diego, California. Strikeforce had been at this venue before, and now they were back. On the call would be Mara Ranallo, Frank Shamrock, and Pat Militich. The attendance had to be disappointing. A paltry 2,995 fans, so just five fans under 3,000 in attendance. Again, this is a promotion that at its first event had drawn 18,000, had drawn 10,000 or more multiple, multiple times. We'd seen the attendance start to slide, but this one, man, under 3,000, I, I mean, we'd seen challengers event events with, you know, over 2,000 fans. So, uh, you know, for them to, to, be drawing short of 3000 and especially for a card with two championship bouts on it, including the lightweight bout, uh, uh, lightweight championship, which was probably their marquee belt. And then, you know, Chris cyborg, who you're pretty much guaranteed to see domination and destruction for them not to draw 3000 fans. I mean, that just had to be seen as pretty negative uh, on the positive side. They did garner an average of 460,000 viewers on Showtime, which was up from what we'd been seeing recently. But man, this just, I really think after the, the, the Zufa deal that, you know, people fighter, or I'm sorry, fighters, uh, fans just saw the writing on the wall and, and it was kind of like, this is a second class organization. Even if, you know, even if, as we have firmly established on this podcast, even if Strikeforce was never truly a competitor to the UFC, you know, at least it was the underdog. It was, you know, David taking on Goliath. There was something that drew fans in the fun. The fights were fun. It was an alternative, etc. Now that they'd been bought, it's honestly, it kind of shows that, you know, we, we talk about, like to talk wrestling 
wrestling on on this uh, on this podcast. But you know, when WWF bought WCW, you know, it was oh they're going to run WCW as a separate as as its own promotion, etc. Still, it just doesn't work. It just does not work. Fans know who really owns it, who's really running it, and there's a reason why they run things differently. It's it's you're just you're not going to let another promotion run differently than yours, and it's just. We saw that kind of proved out here. I think fans realized that I know that as a huge fan of Strike Force, again, I attended the last Strike Force kickboxing event, gone to the first Strike Force MMA event, uh, you know, had had worked for the promotion. I knew that the wind had definitely been taken out of my sails when the promotion got bought and I was not nearly as much of a fan. I don't even know if I watched any 2012 strike force events. I, I've been noticing the ones we've done recently. I hadn't even watched. I uh, wasn't working for the promotion at this time. So, you know, it, it was the bloom was off the rose for me as well. And I think a lot of fans felt the same way, but we should talk about the undercard. Let's get to the event itself. Eddie Mendez defeated Fernando Gonzalez at 185 pounds uh, via decision. And then at 170 pounds, Herman Torado defeated Chris Brown via submission, come away of armbar at 405 of the third round. At a heavyweight bout, Devin Cole defeated Gabriel Salinas Jones via unanimous decision. And then in the co-main event of the undercard, Karos Fodor, who was a, a hot prospect for Strike Force at this time, at 155 pounds, he defeated Justin Wilcox via KO, come away of punches at 13 seconds of the first round. So a very, very quick knockout, knockout for Fodor, who of course always makes me think of Fedor. And then in a catchweight bout at 181 pounds, Roger Bowling defeated Jaron Peoples via KO, come away of punches at 42 seconds of the first round. And I know Peoples, he really took a shot there. Uh, those are, I believe both those fights are on, on UFC Fight Pass and they're worth checking out. And we'll take you less than a minute of your time to check out both fights. So definitely worth checking out. But this brings us to the main card in the opening bout. We saw KJ Nunes take on Billy Evangelista of excuse me Evangelista at 155 pounds. Coming into the fight, former Elite XC lightweight KJ uh, lightweight champion excuse me KJ Nunes was 10 and four coming in, and he was on a two fight losing streak. Unfortunately, going down in a defeat to the at the hands of Nick Diaz and Jorge Masvidal respectively. Uh, this was the first losing streak of his MMA career, so he had changed things up. He had gotten with a new coach, was trying to uh, really kind of you know like I said switch things up. Up. Prior to those losses, Nunes was on a six-fight win streak, so he was looking to turn things around here. And then Evangelista was also coming off a loss. He had suffered his first professional defeat uh, to Jorge Masvidal in his most recent fight, and he now had an 11-1 record. He had been seen as a rising star, a guy that was undefeated in strike force, and maybe he was somebody to look at for a possible title shot. And then the Masvidal loss had kind of taking some of the shine off. However, win over a former world champion like KJ Nunes would go a long way towards restoring his rise to stardom. All right, bringing us to the action itself. Good reaction from the hometown San Diego crowd for KJ Nunes. Uh, apparently, uh, this was brought up on commentary before the fight. Uh, Nunes had said that if he couldn't beat Evangelista, that maybe he shouldn't be fighting. So it kind of hinted at walking away uh, from from keep competing professionally apparently and frank shamrock had talked on commentary about how he didn't like that that's really not a good mindset to have coming into a fight uh but this would this would be a good one for him he surprisingly went for a, a really good takedown early and got it in the first round uh though evangelista was able to scramble back up quickly and 
After some more trading on the feet, Evangelista got a nice lift and slam takedown, though Nunes was able to get back up quickly himself. Both fighters landed some decent strikes with Evangelista having a slight edge. I probably would have given him the first round 10-9, though you could have made a case for, for possibly even a tie. In the second round, things got pretty entertaining. Both fighters landed some really nice strikes. Evangelista seemed to, to want to turn this into a firefight, and he was smiling and shaking his head at Nunes, almost saying that he wasn't being hurt by Nunes' punches. Still, Nunes was clearly landing regularly and scoring, so I gave the second round to him 10-9. Both fighters landed nice punches early in the third, with Nunes also catching Evangelista with a nice high kick. Uh, Evangelista smiled again and shook his head, but it was definitely a scoring shot for Nunes. And then Evangelista, and really the big highlight for him besides some of the punches that he landed, he grabbed a standing Darce choke, and things looked pretty bad for Nunes. He looked like he was caught. Uh, it was definitely on tight. However, Nunes was able to use a good positioning. He essentially kind of dropped down uh, to to his belly, and that was able to that that helped him to be able to get his head out, and and it drew a big reaction from the crowd. Toward the end of the round, the two combatants began talking to each other, seemingly telling each other, "Hey." Let's go. Just a, a really entertaining fight overall. I gave Nunes the – it was a close fight, but I definitely gave him the final round. And so the fight 29-28 in favor of KJ Nunes, which the judges agreed with. Fun fight, uh, which saw KJ Nunes defeat Billy Evangelista via unanimous decision. Nunes would be back to take on Josh Thompson in a very intriguing fight in the first quarter of 2012. This would be it for Evangelista in Strikeforce. Uh, he would be scheduled to take on James Terry inside the Hexagon in 2012, but the fight would be canceled for unknown reasons, and instead Evangelista would go 2-2 two and two over his final four fights, retiring with a 13-3 and three record in 2014. All right, in our next bat, bout at, at 205 pounds, Gegard Musassi would take on Ovince St. Pro. Former Strikeforce light heavyweight champion Gegard Musassi was 32-3-2 coming in. He had fought to a majority draw eight months earlier in an entertaining bloodbath with the Dean of Mean, Keith Jardine. Since then, he'd gotten a first-round KO in a bout in Japan and was undefeated since losing his belt to King Mo in his first Strikeforce title defense. OSP was 11-4 coming in. He had eight straight wins, which tells you that he had had kind of a middling start to his career. He'd been started off his, his career three and four, uh, but then had won eight straight, including four in strike force. He'd beaten Antoine Britt, Benji Raddick, Obongo Humphrey, and Joe Case and inside the hexagon. But this would be a massive step up in competition for the former Tennessee volunteer football player. All right, once the bell rang, Musassi, he was just all over OSP in the opening frame after some trading and feeling out on the feet. Musassi was able to get the fight to the mat and drop some good punches from the top. OSP was able to scramble and almost get back up, and Musassi was, was able to bring it back down to the mat after getting a very tight Kimura in, which saw OSP made a nice move on this. Uh, he had, if you remember the Frank Mir, uh, Antonio Rodrigo Noguera submission where he snapped his arm with the Kimura, uh, Gegard Musassi had that level of positioning, and OSP kind of jumped and rolled forward to take all the tension off his arm. It was a really sweet and slick move on his part. Uh, Musassi, as a result, got reversed briefly, but he was able to get back on top, and he got OSP in a, in a, OSP, excuse me, in a crucifix and dropped some really nice shots from the top. Very entertaining round, 10-9 for the former champ in Musassi. He also dominated the first few minutes of the second round, getting top position again and dropping solid strikes. Uh, the refs stood things up a little surprisingly, and Pat Militich, who was clearly not a big fan of refs stepping in like that, uh, made light or made a point of it on commentary, but OSP used that to get Masassi to the mat while taking top position. He wasn't able to do much damage 
and Musasi was able to scramble and get back to his feet. And after sprawling on an OSP shot, the uh, the horn sounded another 10-9 Musasi round. Uh, you could really see there's uh, Musasi, whose Achilles heel had always been uh, his wrestling, and we'd seen that in when he lost his title at King Mo, where he just repeatedly got taken down. I mean, he didn't get a, he didn't sustain a lot of damage, but he just kept getting taken down. In this fight, you could see that it was something that he had worked on because he was just much improved in terms of his grappling. Uh, he, he got another nice set of takedowns in the final round of this fight. While OSP got a couple of his own, the difference was that Musasi was usually able to inflict damage when he had position, while OSP would be unable to. And when he did late in the fight, it was just uh, simply a case of too little, too late. I'd probably give the final round to OSP, but it just wasn't enough. 29-28 Musassi, and again, the judges agreed with me, and they saw it that way as well. Gegard Musassi defeated Ovin St. Pro via unanimous decision on this one. As far as after the fight, OSP would be back in Strike Force in 2012, while Musassi would be scheduled to fight in, in Strike Force the following year too against Mike Kyle. But the bout would be canceled due to a Kyle injury. For some reason, he was not rescheduled during the year. So instead, Musassi, the former champ, would be back to compete on the very last Strike Force card in January of 2013. All right, we are moving along very quickly here. Uh, you, I'll just stop and mention quickly, when it's me and Josh on here, we like to you know, kind of go down some rabbit holes. We like to talk about, again, wrestling or just kind of whatever catches our fancy while we're talking. There's very little of it that's – I mean, we, we, you know, we go off of a script, of course, of some sort, but there's a lot of ad-libbing, and, and you know, we don't just simply read off a, a script. You know, It's more of a uh, – when him and I are, are going back and forth, it's more of a free-flowing conversation. So we tend to go down rabbit holes and, and eat up a lot of time sometimes and i mean you're listening to this for for leisure as far as i know this isn't being taught in a college class or something like that where hey this is the curriculum if it is please let me know because that would be very interesting to know but uh, when it's just me and i'm not going off on these tangents but you know with somebody else uh, we tend to go a lot quicker whether that's good or bad that's up to you it's subjective uh, and, and totally your call but uh, yeah we are we are burning through these pretty quick but there is despite the length of this this third fight the co-main event there is a lot to cover here and then uh, we'll go over the main event as well but in the co-main of co-main event chris cyborg uh, would take on hiroko yamanaka in defense of her strike force women's featherweight championship cyborg she was 10 and 1 at this point in her career with four straight wins in strike force she had been completely dominant since winning the belt so dominant in fact that in uh, interviews leading up to the fight she stated she wanted to start taking fights at both 135 and 145 pounds as there just were not many true competitors for her in the featherweight division uh, in fact she'd been out of action inside the mma cage for a year and a half due to a lack of competition and then just a, con a contract impasse as well. So, you know what? Ring rust might be a factor in this fight. That was kind of the thought uh, coming in. Hiroko Yamanaka, for her part, she was 12-1, and one, so actually a little bit more experienced in MMA than Cyborg. Uh, she was on an eight-fight win streak, and she had some solid wins on her record, including having won over previous Cyborg title challenger Hitomi Akano. So despite being a pretty big underdog, she was seen as a threat to Cyborg. Uh, she was also taller. This was the first time in Cyborg's career that she would face a fighter that was taller than her, and she had a three-inch reach advantage. And Cyborg, on top of all that herself, she stated that Yamanaka would present a solid challenge to the belt. So, uh, you know, it, it could be an intriguing fight. I do want to mention, uh, once we got to, you know, watching the actual events, I, I learned before the fight that Yamanaka had gotten into MMA because she wanted to get in better shape. A lot of us do. 
but also because she thought it would help her get better at her job as a dominatrix at an SNM club in Japan. Uh, Mara Ranallo was nice enough to dig up that piece of information and share it on commentary and then toss it to uh, Frank Shamrock, who was, as you might imagine, at a loss for words and really unsure of how to respond to that. So that was a, a kind of an LOL moment during during the event itself. But uh, nice reaction for Cyborg. Uh, it was funny. So when she's coming down to the cage, I, I'm li- you know I'm kind of like keeping an ear out to you know what song are they coming down to the cage for, you know listening to. And a lot of times it's uh, you know a, a rap song or a rock song or some sort of pop you know contemporary pop song or whatever. So I'm listening and I'm like, I feel like I recognize this song, but it's not a, you know, a mainstream hit. I'm like, man, where do I, and so I put my ear close to the the speaker and I realized she was coming to the, to the cage, to the song free to run, which is a contemporary Christian song uh, that was popular back in 2011. I do remember that song. I recognized it. And then when cyborg in her very hoarse, rather deep voice started singing along with it. I was like, okay, I definitely know this song. So kind of, kind of interesting. She was praising God as she came down to the cage. And, uh, you know, we've talked before about the whole idea of like someone beating somebody up and then saying, thank you, Jesus, for giving me the power to do this afterwards is kind of, kind of weird, but, uh, anyways, uh, but yeah. All right, but this would be a, for the fight itself, would be a very quick one. Uh, All the talk of Yamanaka being a threat turned out to be absolutely empty. Yamanaka got caught by a cyborg right hand. Basically, cyborg threw a left and then two rights, and the right hand just caught Yamanaka in the face flush. She was immediately uh, dropped. The champ swarmed. Yamanaka, to her credit, initially survived. But when she got up, uh, got up again, she got dropped again. The ref stepped in and stopped the fight just 16 seconds in. On that, you know, watching it live, I thought it was an early stoppage. The ref's back was kind of covering a little bit of the camera shot, and I and Yamanaka was clearly rising to her feet. And Militic pointed that out on commentary. Uh, but I mean, I, you know, didn't really matter. It was clearly Cyborg's fight. And I should mention that once they showed the entire fight on replay, the ref stoppage looked a a lot better, a lot more credible. Essentially, the ref stepped in when Yamanaka was still down, and then Cyborg stopped punching her because the ref had stepped in, and that's when she started rising. And it was bang, bang. Like, it happened really quickly. So it was kind of hard to see, but I actually think it was a good stoppage because with her still down, she'd been dropped. Cyborg's just pouring it on. She's not going to stop punching. Uh, I think the ref just simply saved her from, uh, you know, from further damage. And it was very clear these two were light years apart on their feet. I mean, you could see it immediately, and 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 this was it. I mean, Cyborg was just on another level with her striking. Yes, there are women today, such as Amanda Nunez, that can stand with her. You know, maybe if you know, maybe Holly Holm or somebody like that. But there are just so few female fighters that can in any way compete with Cyborg on the feet, and you could see that just in spades during this card. So this was it. Uh, once the fight was done, Militich mentioned Cyborg Rousey saying that he'd love to see that fight. Uh, Might have been the first one in MMA to call for it, which we unfortunately would never get to see. Rousey was fighting at 145 pounds at this point, but would end up dropping down to 135. And then for those that aren't aware, basically the two would have a war of words with Rousey saying, hey, you need to come down to my weight class and Cyborg 
uh, trying to, and just, she just was too big and, you know, trying to make the fight at 140 and Rousey didn't want to do that. And they, you know, there's a lot of information out there on that. I would have loved to have seen that fight because it was a situation where yes, Cyborg is a brilliant Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. She wasn't you know, definitely no slouch on the ground, but Rhonda was obviously an Olympic medalist in judo and could snap your arm. And I, I just think that, I mean, obviously it's not that I think that it would have been an absolutely intriguing fight. And so on the foot, on the post fight, uh, um, on the microphone, uh, cyborg was asked about it and she, she more now asked her about uh, Rhonda and said, yeah, in her at that time, broken English essentially said, yeah, I, you know, this girl talks too much and the crowd kind of oohed and they had just shown uh, uh, Rousey on camera. I would have loved to have seen Rousey either go into the cage or show her face on, you know, if they'd shown her face on camera while, you know, so we could have gotten a reaction shot, but they showed Rhonda on, on camera and she smiled that beautiful smile and waved and, and all that stuff, which was, you know, which was cool to see. But, yeah, Cyborg, she made it clear that's really who she had in mind next. But uh, again, unfortunately, we never get to see that fight. So the official uh, tally was Chris Cyborg defeated Hiroko Yamanaka via KO come away of punches at 16 seconds of the first round. Or did or did she? Stay with me just a second here. Yamanaka would be back in strike force the following year. However, this would not be the case for the champ. This would be the last that we would see of Chris Cyborg in strike force. And it wasn't because of injury it wasn't because of lack of you know lack of competition or anything you know a, a contract dispute none of that stuff instead we would not see chris cyborg again because her reputation and credibility had been soiled by the fact that she had tested positive for stenozolol and anabolic steroid that's right this fight she had come in on steroids uh, and as a result of the positive test the result of the fight would be overturned and changed to a no contest cyborg would be stripped of her belt and suspended for a year this would also also again end up ultimately end up uh, stopping her run with Strike Force as the promotion would fold before uh, her con you know I'm not sorry her contract before her suspension was up and so she wasn't able to come back and Cyborg would state on her website that she had failed the test uh, because she had taken a dietary supplement that she had been assured would would uh, would was legal it was she was having trouble cutting weight and so she had taken this uh, this dietary supplement she'd been told that it was fine. Um, and, and, you know, she did accept responsibility for the test and, you know, Hey, anything you put in your body is your responsibility. She apologized to Yamanaka, the promotion, all the fans, etc. cetera. Uh, but it didn't matter again. It would spell the end of her title reign, her run with the pro promotions and also the chances of her going to the UFC at that time, just a very costly error in judgment. Dana White had made it clear that he was not a big fan of cyborgs. Uh, and this really probably paved the way for, Ronda Rousey to become kind of the it girl in MMA and, and open the door for her to go over to the UFC. So, you know, despite all that though, however, I, you know, I am a big fan of cyborg. She's currently the Bellator women's featherweight champion. She holds a record of 25, two and one, and she's gone on to have one of the most successful, one of the most successful careers in MMA history. And she may even be the woman's goat, but even if she's not, she's absolutely on the Mount Rushmore of female MMA fighters. I mean, you, you can put Ronda on there, you can put Nunez on there and you can put cyborg on there. And then that fourth spot, uh, maybe up a little bit for, uh, you know, that, 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 you know, there's, there's other women that you can debate, you know, whether it's Misha Tate or, uh, Marlo's Coonan or, you know, some, uh, Holly Holm, somebody like that. I mean, there, there are definitely some, some great fighters that you could look at for that fourth spot, but you really, I don't know that you could make a case for, uh, cyborg, 
Nunez and and Rousey, you know, not being the top three female fighters of all time. And then even going further than that, regardless of gender, Cyborg is the only fighter in MMA history to hold four, hold titles in four major MMA promotions: Strikeforce, Invicta, the UFC, and Bellator. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. That's not something Ronda Rousey ever did. She never was with Bellator or Invicta. That's not something that Misha Tate has done. That's not something that Amanda Nunez has done. I mean, that's that's pretty amazing. So uh, to me. She's the best. She's the most celebrated women's fighter of all time. And even though she's been fighting for as long as she has, she is still, you know, one of the the best female fighters out there. So pretty amazing. It's just sad that somebody that was, uh, you know, such a big figure in Strikeforce would end her career with that promotion or her, her, at least her run with that promotion with such a, you know, just such a negative on such a negative tone. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. You know, there's always been whispers about her. I mean, you, based on her appearance, based on her voice that, you know, she must like her musculature that, you know, there's, there's always been rumors that she's done steroids and just hasn't been caught, you know, that sort of thing. I, I can't speak to any of that. Um, that, you know, again, that's really up to, you know, people if they want to speculate on that kind of thing. But regardless, uh, this was the only time that she's ever popped for, for, you know, for anything during her career. So, you know, you can take that as you will, but yeah, I, despite that, I mean, would that have made a difference in this fight? <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of doubt it, but you know, Hey, I guess we'll never know. But this brings us to the main event, which was Gilbert Melendez El Nino defending his Strikeforce Lightweight Championship against Gamebred Jorge Masvidal. This was his third defense of, of the title. He was 19-2 and two coming in, talking about Melendez. He'd won five straight overall. After seemingly being headed to the UFC, Dana White had announced that Melendez instead had reversed course and re-signed with his hometown promotion, and now he'd be facing a big challenge. In Jorge Masvidal, who was 22-6 and six coming in, he'd won three of his last four fights, including two in strike force with wins over Billy Evangelista and KJ Nunes. This was a pre-Street Jesus Masvidal. His hair was uh, was buzzed, and or not necessarily buzzed, but cl- very, very close cropped. Uh, but he was definitely a, a star on the rise, very experienced, already had 28 fights. I mean, at his age, that was a big deal. Uh, but, but yeah, this was a guy that, you know, hey, if somebody could stand and bang with a guy like Melendez, it was definitely Jorge Masvidal. And this is that's what we would see in this fight. In the first round, it appears that Masvidal wanted to turn it into a slugfest while Melendez was fighting more of a tactical fight on the feet. The, the champ's accuracy was the difference, and while Gamebred made it clear the strikes weren't hurting him, he was eating them, and the champ was scoring. In an interesting sequence in the first round, Melendez grabbed a standing guillotine, which he used to throw knees to the head, and Masvidal kept trying to put his hand down so that the knees would be illegal. So El Nino responding to that, grabbed his hand and threw more knees, which was kind of funny to see see that and and very smart very very cerebral move for melendez 10-9 after the first round masvidal once again proved his toughness in the second round uh, but melendez was clearly the crisper more technical striker and he was piling up points with his punches 10-9 for the champ after two Melendez's aggression was on full display in the middle frame as he seemingly every single time that Masvidal would throw a strike, he would eat two in return. Uh, Despite that, it was El Nino who was showing damage on his face with a solid amount of swelling around his eyes. 
The third round was definitely close. I, I could have gone either way, but I probably gave it to Masvidal, uh, which gave him his first round still 2-1 to one in my estimation for Melendez. Uh, more stand-up in the fourth and the fifth round. Both of them, Melendez, again, standing out despite his face looking the worst for wear. Masvidal really needed to go for it, but he just seemed to be unable to really pull the trigger and land that big punch that would put Melendez on his back foot. Melendez just never stopped moving forward. He's like the Terminator. And the fourth round, another round for the champ, and the final was more the same. Again, Masvidal scoring, but not really able to break through. Melendez showing off that superior technical striking ability in another round for the champ who clearly won in my mind you could have made a case for it being a clean sweep uh but it, it really while Mas, while neither fighter never had the other fighter in danger uh it was definitely a a competitive fight i, I just it was pretty clear that melendez was a cut above masvidal at this point I, I felt like these guys could have gone another another few rounds i mean their gas tanks were super impressive uh, and super necessary. However, the fight itself, it was not super entertaining in my mind. Yes, it, it had, um, you know, it, it was it was high octane and they were always on the go and there were very few lulls. Neither fighter had any huge highlights. You know, neither of them got dropped really. And, you know, despite both scoring with a ton of strikes, neither one of them just really stood out as just, oh, you know, you know, he was putting them on his back or anything like that. So Gilbert Melendez defeated Jorge Masvidal via decision to retain the strike force lightweight champion uh, uh lightweight championship both these fighters will be back in strike force the next year with melendez back to compete complete a trilogy with with josh thompson and i'm looking forward to covering that one for sure but that was melendez versus masvidal uh, we do have some more information to wrap things up with we already mentioned that cyborg had tested positive for a steroid several other fighters including melendez masvidal musassi and OSP were tested for both drugs of abuse, such as cocaine, as well as performance enhancers and all tested clean, except for Cyborg. Total disclosed fighter payroll, this is interesting, $154,075. And Melendez, he got $150,000, the first fight of his new contract, no win bonus. He That's right, he earned almost the entire gate himself. Jorge Masvidal got $23,000. Cyborg got $66,000 with $33,000 win bonus. By the way, her suspension was for a year and a $2,500 uh, fine. It, obviously, that's a much different situation today. The fines are a lot more, and uh, you know they, they, they have much different penalties than they used to. Hiroko Yamanaka for getting just destroyed. Uh, she earned $8,000. Gegard Musassi also got $150,000. Ovin St. Pro got 17,000 KJ Nunes got 65,000 uh including a $30,000 win bonus and then Billy Evangelista got 20,000. So again, um the I I said total disclosed fighter payroll was 154,000. I'm sorry, that was the gate. The gate was 154,000 and cuz obviously just Melendez and Musasi, they pulled in $300,000 between the two of them and doing a quick estimate if you look at the rest I, I they pulled in another 100,000, probably another 200,000. So this was probably and this isn't including the fighters on the undercard. So you're talking, you know, four hundred fifty thousand to five hundred thousand dollar, you know, in in fighter payroll basically. And you only brought in one hundred fifty four thousand from the gate. Obviously, that's not including, you know, whatever Showtime paid them, and then um, 
you know, I'm sure they split the uh, concessions with the arena or I don't know, maybe the arena gets all the concessions. I don't know how that all works, uh, but they I mean, there's just it's hard to think that this wasn't a a money loser uh, in terms you know, of strike force. So uh, but it was despite all that another entertaining strike force card. Three of the fights went the distance, but they were still pretty entertaining. Nunes versus Evangelista and Musasi versus OSP were both fun to watch while we got to see more cyborg destruction. And then in the main event, Gilbert Melendez really further cemented himself as one of the best lightweights in the world while Jorge Masvidal shows that showed that he could hang with the very best but that just that pretty much wraps things up uh, I'm happy to announce I got a couple cool uh, uh, announcements here but Ryan Couture the son of uh, one of the all-time greats in Randy the Randy Couture Ryan fought several times with Strike Force towards the end of the promotion and Ryan is also uh, he runs the Extreme Couture gym in Las Vegas Nevada today and it went ended up going on to the UFC and you know he carved out a respectable career for himself you know he, he didn't uh, you know attain the the legacy of his father Randy but Ryan a very good pro and, and obviously a great coach I believe Extreme Couture was just named MMA gym of the weir, uh, of the year by MMA Junkie they are the home base uh, for Francis Ngano, the UFC heavyweight champion. And so Ryan uh, has agreed to come on the show as a guest. I'm really excited to interview him. We had some contact back in the day, and so we're going to reconnect, and he's excited to come and talk about Strike Force or the good old days, as he called it. And then I'm also super excited to mention that st- former Strike Force welterweight champion Nate Marcourt has agreed to come on the show. And so I'm really excited about talk about that. Marcourt had perhaps the most brutal knockout in all of strike force history, the uppercut knockout of Tyron Woodley, uh, which garnered him the strike force welterweight championship. I'm excited to, to cover that one. And Marquardt is going to come on the show. We're going to talk about that and talk about his run with the promotion before we wrap things up. Uh, coming up next, however, we're going to be covering Rockhold versus Jardine. It featured the first middleweight title defense for Luke Rockhold. We'd also see appearances from King Mo, Robbie Lawler, and Tyron Woodley. So this should be a fun fun, uh, fun one to cover, almost a fun run. Sorry, the Office fans. Fun one to cover. Uh, so the, we, we got some cool stuff coming up as again, as we look to wrap things up, uh, this is hitting you. This is hitting the feed on January 10th. Uh, the way that things are right now, we are scheduled to wrap up the show at the end of March. Of course, that's dependent on, you know, if we take any more breaks, that sort of thing. And I should mention, I apologize. We weren't planning to take a break last week, but scheduling and different things, just, uh, you know, the, the new year and that sort of thing just kept us from being able to record. We don't have any more scheduled breaks, uh, through the end of our run. I'm really hoping that we can just continue to power through as again, we come towards the end of strike force while we have a full calendar year, a uh, 2012 of strike force events to cover again, they had been cut back and there's only seven more uh, strike force cards in 2012. And then there's one in January of 2013 uh, and that wraps things up. So we only have eight more strike force events to cover. Like I said, we've got two fighter interviews. I'm hoping to secure a couple more. I've got a couple more in mind. I've reached out to a couple fighters. King Mo has agreed to come on, but we haven't been able to, to get that scheduled yet. So I'd like to have that. I've reached out uh, to Luke Rockhold to see if we can have him on, him on. I was in contact with Tyron Woodley's team uh, over the summer before the first Jake Paul fight. So I reached back out to see if we can have he wasn't able to come on at that time and hoping he'll be able to now make some time to be able to come on so I I did get to know Tyron a little bit so I'd love to make that happen and then I'll let you know that the 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 one other thing that I really want to do is we have the trilogy 
between Josh Thompson and Gilbert Melendez. Gilbert has come on the show already, came on early on in our podcast run. Uh, Josh has agreed to come on the show, but we've just never been, we just, we haven't, I've been basically saving him because I really want to have, I'd love to be able to have both of them come on at the same time. And if not, maybe I'll talk to them both separately. We can call it together into, uh, into one or two episodes, but I would love to have them both on at the same time to be able to talk about their trilogy of fights. I think it would be fun to do that. And so I'm looking to, I'm looking to do that. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up again. You can reach me at fill it inside the hexagon.com. I really, really appreciate uh, any type of feedback that I can get from you. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy and we will see you soon. Hit Pass Moto, sponsored by Moto America, is the show that keeps you up to speed on the latest in motorcycling and brings the biggest names in motorcycle racing right to you. From candid interviews with the top names in racing to providing insights into the trends and trendsetters driving the motorcycle industry, we have you covered. New episodes are available every Thursday at pitpassmoto.com and on your favorite podcast app. Ride on.